In just a moment, we will return with another exciting adventure featuring a guest star from the galaxy of super superheroes. Max Ray, brilliant sea operations commander. Now, I'm running now, though. I've, I've been doing a lot of running lately. Who oh, are you okay. running from? Your feelings? The past? Your father? Running, to, running towards love, Arif. Running towards love. It's not true at all. <laughs> it could be. No. It just sounds nice. Yeah, you used to be uh, quite athletic. What do you Arif, mean, used back, to be? I'm pretty fucking athletic the... now. What are you talking about? Yeah? Yeah, man. I fucking... You exercise? I mean, theoretically. <laughs> why don't you get back into... Uh, What's really exercise? Cr- cricket or football or something. Yeah, why don't you get it back into fucking cricket? Yeah, why don't you get back into cricket? You remember when you... Tra- remember when you tra- wearing homo, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> remember when you tried to organize cricket? <laughs> <laughs> why? What, what was you tried to get a bunch of people together to play cricket. <laughs> what was wrong with that, John? I think amazing. that was a pretty... That was a pretty resounding success, I think. You know, if I remember correctly. Why was wrong with it? Nothing is wrong with it. I'm just, I was just thinking that you're mocking I, me, I, my, I, mocking I, my I, organizational efforts. I would fucking love playing cricket right now. Like I am, I am in the right place in my life. I have the right sweaters. I have Don't the right mock shoes. my fucking culture. It's your fucking culture too, you fucking mick punk. What are you talking right? about? I'm a mutt. I, nothing's my culture. That's true too. Sorry. <laughs> I, I take that back. I got, I got everything, and I got everything in me. There's no, there's no foundation. Yeah, I read a book once um, about, and I just it was I was going through that phase. I think it was grad school phase of I was like everything was just in disarray. You you were there. You were witness to it. A I lot of the it. body odor. What? What? You didn't even tell me about it. <laughs> Those little uh, annex offices. Oh, that was me farting, actually. That wasn't B.O. But, <laughs> man, I had girlfriends visit that office of mine. I didn't even realize. It's it's the it's the mosque, right? No, it was farting, dude. I was farting all the time in that. In that and that in those annex offices, it just bakes in there. So you just hot pot. You just, you just you, Dutch oven yourself and everyone else. You just look like a like a post-war... Omar Sharif just That's huddling true. with a little little blanket on your shoulders, frayed blanket on your shoulders, just shivering with a little tin cup. I think it was a good look. I don't know. Where... <laughs> just like mm. I, I don't remember that look at all. I really shitty, really cool. shitty windows were like the they were just completely frosted yeah, up, sort of rustic was, looking. Yeah, yeah. In, like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of antique looking, sort of baroque maybe. Like a it's baroque a little, style, a little little candle by the by the uh-huh. desktop. You trying to punch away on your thesis? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Like it was pretty sort of yeah. I'd I'd call it sort of uh, Russian, like a sort of Russian, like uh, you know, uh, sort of Slavic kind of. Well, they had those like seventies seventies desks, right? Like with the with like really really heavy. Antique. They have like yeah, 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 vintage. Vintage sort of antique style is what you. I think the words that you were looking for. You sort Jason's of looking at us. Why the, why the hell are you guys reminiscing about this garbage? 
<laughs> You're supposed to reminisce about good things, not things that I don't lead to I think psychological scarring. <laughs> I think we're remembering it differently, John. I think I, I, I have a different version of events, I think, perhaps. <laughs> I, I'm sort of in a, like a Tolstoy novel, and you perhaps remember it sort of like a homeless person you know, around an oil drum fire, perhaps, you know. I was going through a tough time Think. during that period. Of t- that man, I like, I, like, if there's levels of autistic, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like, it's like from 2006 to 2011. I was just 100% autistic 100% of the time. No offense <laughs> to any autistic people that are out there. And then, and then it's like, I don't know, 2012, 2013, something broke in my brain and, and it started to come down. I'm not sure why though. I think you were completely normal, John. What are you I think it's about? nutrition or something. I don't know. I think you were fine. What are you, what are you talking about? Remember when I you wasn't, were... I was not inside, man. I was not fine on the inside. <laughs> it was just a ball of anxiety and self-loathing. Remember, we were completely normal. Remember when we had that three hour argument about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the Tim Hortons, uh, I've had a lot of arguments about Buffy the Vampire Slayer over the years. It's hard. Remember to... when we were sitting there, we were arguing <laughs> and then, then some lady came up to us and she, she's like, do you guys like Nietzsche? And then, oh my John, god i do remember that do you remember that i do and remember that john this fucking half retard he just looks straight at her in the eyes she's like no <laughs> i didn't know anything <laughs> about Nietzsche. Like, i, I had no know idea I, I don't even know if i was drunk i mean that was, no you that were not is, drunk it was bright it was full yeah it was yeah no it was in the afternoon drunk, no you were not drunk you were just retarded is what you were and i went through just, a flask phase there for a little while i didn't remember that no, oh no, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah. I remember. I think when we were, when I was going out with uh, the maybe I should I should name her, but yeah, you know who I was Person. going out with, yeah. And uh, yeah, probably during that time you were carrying around the flask, because then I'd drag you over to her house, and that was sort of pleasant, right? Dragging oh, you over to the yeah to that girlfriend's house. Yep. <laughs> you enjoyed that, didn't you? You know, the girlfriend must have really enjoyed it as well. I mean, that was probably the highlight. <laughs> Why? What was wrong with it? I think it you was. Know, a, I, 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 it took me a long time to learn. You don't actually bring friends on dates when you're with it. We it's weren't a, going on dates. It's like being, it's like being chaperoned. I mean, I mean, seriously, how how old were you? Are like Jesus? I mean, my God, dude. Well, he he, like, asked, remember, he asked he asked his mother, but I mean it was, it was a long flight. It was expensive. That's that's teenage shit. Bringing your friends along on dates. We weren't going on dates. I I, I took John along so that it's like I I'm would, not comfortable enough with myself to hang out with this woman alone. I'll bring John along. That'll make yes, things all better. One hundred percent. She'll like me more once she sees me in comparison to John. <laughs> that's one hundred percent. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that strategy. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's an adult decision to actually do that. I'm actually the smart one and you're the, I'm the hunter. You are the hunted, actually, if you think about it, the the tables have turned. How are you, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just, I'm remembering, uh, I'm remembering when we first started recording Tucker Park 
and uh, just talk about these like long, ridiculous uh, arguments we would have. And and I remember the very first episode we did. It was just after it was like the Con Film Festival, and Clint Eastwood and Spike Lee had 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 words, and like Clint Eastwood had said, like you know, like Spike Lee was talking about how in the Eastwood war movies, there weren't a lot of black people. And then Eastwood said, I think a punk like that should just shut his mouth. And, uh, and we must talked about this for like 40, 45 minutes. I don't even remember who was on whose side, but it got heated. It got really. I can't imagine. I got heated. I don't remember who was on who, like which one of us, no, I, I don't. I can't imagine I, we were arguing about that. Were we? I think we would I, all yeah. have been on Clint's side. I think on that. I, I don't. I don't I know. Think it's safe to say. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. maybe or maybe. Maybe ago. my. Maybe my memory is just. You know, sometimes when we're all on the same side, but it's just getting heated because and then we're we like, got to fight. Fight. I got to like, figure out some way to fight with John. Or, yeah. Or even just that we're egging each other on. Yeah. To 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 greater heights of belligerence. I don't I mean, remember maybe, maybe that's John what it being was. that autistic. I mean, there was a period. Okay, the the here's John's introduction. Well, like when I met John, his Facebook profile picture was the back of his head. Now, like if it was, and he just left it as that, with the implication in my head was like I don't want to talk to anybody, or that he didn't know how to take a picture. Um, yeah. It was one of those two things. Could have um, been both. Yeah. Could have been both. Who knows? I, he was uh, less abrasive a personality. John, you were less yeah. abrasive a personality than I was. I think you came across as less abrasive to most people. That's the strange thing. Yeah. No, I, I remember. I, I, I know we met. I know the first time we met was at. There was just like a big group of people hanging out at some bar. And that's where we met the first time and yeah, I, I remember not having really any thoughts th- about me at all. That's really, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. rather, rather than me being <laughs> autistic, I was just invisible. You were which just, is, which is maybe, which is no, no which man. Is we had, I mean, I, I prefer no. this to be honest. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, I remember we had, I feel like we had, I, I had just, seen the new indiana jones movie and i think we had i think we had a chat about what a piece of shit that was and uh oh that fridge scene Hmm. oh i know man it It was was the cgi monkeys that was the problem with that one i think more than the fridge shia labeouf shia labeouf although shia labeouf turned into a pretty good actor man i mean that's true that's true he 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 surprised us all he blossomed he well, you know, he, he really insulted, um, like he really came down hard on 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 uh, that Indiana Jones movie, like yeah. in the press. Like he just wanted to distance himself from it completely. And he blamed oh, really? himself. And he and he took the ownership. It wasn't even like a situation where he had, like, he tried to blame um, the the movie itself. He was just like, yeah, I don't know, I I. I was shit. I wasn't good in it. But, he, but the uh, thing is that even if he was good, like if it was the best version of Shia LaBeouf, there's no way that he could elevate that movie. Oh, the movie's trash. It was absolutely. No 
it was absolute trash. It. Uh, How do you get some of the best filmmakers seriously in, in, in Hollywood in a room and make that? I, I, I honestly don't understand I, how you get... Uh, how it's pure happen? nostalgia because they were operating on pure nostalgia. Well, because they... But, but the thing is, is it's not nostalgic. Right. No. It's, well, I, th- I, think it's, I think it was a situation where Spielberg was coming off this string of movies where he actually was um, stretching himself. Because I think for the first time he was combining these darker impulses that he had with his more historical movies with a more popcorn entertainment kind of movie like movies like minority report war of the worlds even munich to a certain extent where i mean realistically it's it's a thriller it's a spy thriller that just so happens to deal with some pretty dark history so i think he's coming off of that but he had people people just he knew that everybody wanted another indiana jones movie harrison ford's not getting any younger by then he's in his late 60s and i think it was one of those things where nobody was really feeling it but they just said uh you know what let's just do it this is the this is the script we got this is the best we got let's just let's just get the gang together and hope for the best and it was it wasn't it wasn't the best. It was like the worst case scenario for that movie. It was really bad. I mean, even in the before that of the Indiana Jones movies, like even with the the last is that the Last Crusade was Last Crusade. The Last Crusade, the yeah. last crusade starts to dip off. Like I, I really I like the Last Crusade. I mean, it's I didn't mind that. I, I mean, it's just it's, but still like when you've got it's not compared rated, to the previous two movies. No. Yeah. But I like but, it. I like it a lot, but it's not. Yeah. No, that's true. It it's um well I think it's just overall it's not as solid as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is clearly the one that's the most uh, it, there's no missteps in that one. Oh, it's and, almost you know, perfect, right? Temple the Temple Temple of Doom definitely has missteps, but the last like 40, 45 minutes is probably the most exciting. They got Indian cuisine sequence. completely wrong for in one. I mean, there was a slight misstep, I would say. No, I've, I've, seen, I've seen what you eat, Ara. Come it's on. It's pretty much the same. <laughs> I love that scene in, in, in Temple of Dune when, um, you know, he's, he's been drugged and then the, the little kid burns him. Mm. And, mm. He rea- and he realizes, oh, he comes, up, he comes away from the drug and the hallucination or whatever. And then you see that mine cart with the, uh, the light in front. Yeah, moving towards, and you see Indiana Jones standing there. It's a great. That's a great scene. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah, it's a great. It's very iconic in Indiana Jones image for sure. Yeah, it's um, yeah, like that last section is definitely the most, um, like the best action set piece out of the whole series. So that's why I would put it above Last Crusade. I think it just doesn't have anything as exciting as that. But no, I mean the first three though are you know definitely hold up and they're all really good. But that that it'd be like if they came back with one more Back to the Future. You know they were just like you know let's just let's just do it one more time. And also one of the things I remember like I watched it recently 
with Seher still holds up. First two still hold up, but <laughs> like in the scenes in the you know in the opening scenes of everything, like every Indiana Jones movie, there are scenes of Harrison Ford like teaching archaeology to oh, yeah. the the class. And yeah. all of these women, all the female screws, they're all like swooning over him. But they, she, uh, right, she has eyelids. I love, yeah, yeah. I love you written on her eyelids. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, like, that is the most retarded fucking. <laughs> uh, uh, that is the most fantastic element of this entire Indiana Jones thing. Well, I where, actually think, I think it's that movie that uh, Steven Spielberg actually lost his virginity. Because if you'll notice. What do you mean? Well, it's the most erotic of the Indiana Jones movie. So he was definitely going through like a sexual awakening phase with, uh, with that movie. Cause you I mean, think, you have, you have the, the thing on the eyelids, you have, um, what is it? The, the, the German, uh, love interest biting, In the first one bite, biting Harrison Ford's lip. Oh yeah. And like pulling the lip away. <laughs> like yeah, with yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you, you watch that as an adult and you're just like, like the tonally it is like oh let this is the third movie in this series let's get uh, a little frisky oh yeah he's let's a little warmed up so he's just like oh much can i oh, just fucking why don't you I, just I really fucking just, bite his lip i, just I honestly just think lip. that it's the first time that steven spielberg realized that people have sex <laughs> i think that anything he decided because i mean prior to that his movies are absolutely devoid oh they're very chaste except yeah, very chaste. but then after that like that scene don't in mention Munich. that one scene in E.T. That's a oh, Munich. Scene. That is a, that's fucking weird. The you fact that, that he ends the movie. With, I mean, he sh- so it's like he intercuts the actual Munich massacre. We see it for the first time in its total with the scene of Eric Bana having this wild sex with his wife it's very strange i i don't i i still don't know what to make of oh, it how about the the long like he just holds the camera on the scene where that where the assassin oh, where gets shot the in the neck ass- yeah. and her tits are hanging out and her full bush is just right there and he just holds the camera like i've never seen spielberg hold the camera on the naked woman's body that's just blood coming that, that's that that's the kubrick that's the kubrick influence right there because that that scene is probably the most cold-blooded shit spielberg ever did uh it's a really but it's weird it's, it's a really hurt it's a really it's sexual it's not like scene. a little bit yeah see, you I, know i, I don't want to i don't want to play the game of like trying to draw conclusions about a filmmaker from what they've filmed but man that guy's got some skeletons in his closet oh of course right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> i don't I know mean, what they are but <laughs> yeah absolutely power to them though i mean you know like there's some like yeah there you have to be able to do like you have to have some i don't know maybe maybe it's a stereotype but it's like a stereotype that has to be true we come across it all the time like there has to be some sort of sense of an early delusion to be able to carry you through the making of an entire film project i think you know oh for sure and i think even when you get to the level you know the the level of someone like spielberg i i think that still has to be there i I mean there's definitely movies he makes where he's going through the motions like the post the post i wasn't crazy about that's kind of what that 
in that uh, CG one he did there. Um, Ready Player One. Yeah, that was just a paint by numbers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Show up, show up, collect a paycheck. Yeah, there's one, and honestly, the only moment that seems to have any real um, passion behind it is probably the Shining sequence because it seems like it's the one moment where it seems like something has been stirred within him because, you know, obviously he loves that movie and loves Kubrick. So maybe it's just that, but that's the only part that seems to have any inspiration at all. But the rest of it is just, yeah, for sure. Like you say, paint by numbers. Um, What I don't understand is why Steven Spielberg's paint by numbers isn't better than it is. Because you know what? Like you take someone who's do, who's done paint by numbers movies, um, Peter Jackson. So the Hobbit trilogy is paint by numbers. This yeah. is clearly someone that's coming in. He's overwhelmed. Doesn't really want to do this anymore. Figures he's done. There are moments. There are, the movies are terrible, but there are moments in Hobbit, like moments, minutes mm-hmm. that eclipse yep. all of the paint by numbers movies that Steven Spielberg has done. Oh yeah, like I only saw the first one, um, but. But I remember there. I, I it's been a while, so I can't remember any specific scenes. But I do remember there were moments of genuine excitement watching that movie. Absolutely, um, or even like, um, I mean, William Friedkin does have some paint by numbers stuff that's that's dreadful. But even he like um, he's got this movie, The Hunted, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Oh yeah. Uh, I like that movie. it's good man like and that's the, you know it's obvious like he's just like oh, okay i'm gonna do this kind of action movie with some car chases and people like it when i do chases so i'm just gonna do that it's got a little bit of that paint by numbers quality but he you know he really brings it home like it's it's a solid movie but yeah spielberg i don't know i, I think there's certain people they probably just need that they need to be a hundred percent in order to do something that's yeah. of their, you know, yeah. do you think that Tarantino's ever done a paint by numbers movie or do you think he's always jazzed? I think he's always jazzed. Like e- even things that he made where it feels like maybe he's spinning his wheels a little bit like Django Unchained by ice. I do seem to be in a minority on this, but I, I'm not a big fan of that one. Um, I but I don't. I, but I don't think it's paint by numbers, or that he's not like that. He's not totally into what he's doing there. Um, I agree. Yeah, I think Tarantino's always. Um, he's always very energized, and it's the same with uh, you know someone like Scorsese. I think like he's got a couple. Like even if you see something like Color of Money, which is one of his more impersonal paycheck movies, but you can tell he's still really excited by the style, like the way he shoots the, um, the pool scenes. It, you can tell there's still something that's kind of exciting him. And, and you just, you feel that you still feel that sense of passion, but Spielberg definitely has somewhere. Yeah. You just, it, there, there seems to be a, a disconnect um, you know, Hook would probably, be, but Hook's such a debacle that 
a part of me wonders, I don't know, like maybe there was a genuine passion there. It was just misguided. Because uh, I, 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 That's what I lean towards. I think it's, it's misguided. Yeah, because I think that when you fuck up that big, like when it's that much of a train wreck, I don't think you're going to make a train wreck like that paint in a paint-by-numbers kind of way. All right. I just have to admit this because, you know, I watched Hook when I was a little boy. And can I, Jason, I was a boy, okay? So <laughs> just... You like the movie. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I I, liked it too. Forgive I, I liked, me. I haven't I revisited it. it. I liked it too, yeah. Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, yeah, I liked it. I liked Hart it. Julia Roberts. But it's still a Bell. mess. Yeah, it's no, still it's, a mess. It's dog yeah. shit. I mean, yeah. it's me. It's Dustin Hoffman as as uh, Captain Hook. It was sort of ridiculous. And there's a weird, I had weird ideas. Weird ideas in that movie with the the short hook, like mm. a, with a Napoleonic kind of. And it had uh, fucking Bob Hoskins as me, man. What a cast! Hot Tinkerbell. I wanted a fuck Tinkerbell. <laughs> Let's be honest. You still want to fuck Tinkerbell? I want to fuck Tinkerbell currently, um, but yeah, honestly, I, I couldn't imagine Robin Williams as Robin Williams was miscast. I think I feel sad saying this, but yes, I think he was miscast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the thing about <laughs> I mean, the thing about Robin Williams is. Um, the majority of the movies he made, I mean, let's be honest, were terrible. But but he, cl- no, I th- and I, and I think the and it's unfortunate because I think the the thing with Robin Williams is he obviously was a great talent. I just think most directors didn't know what to do with it, and they didn't know how to yeah. use them. Like Terry Gilliam, it's unfortunate they didn't work together more because I think Terry Gilliam was kind of the good choice. He was the ideal director. Like when you see the Fisher King, he was one of the few directors who could really channel that kind of crazy manic Robin Williams. A lot of, a lot of directors got really impatient with with Robin. Like he, he would screw up their schedule and he would constantly try to play with things and they wouldn't go with what he was yeah, you know, putting down they he, they go with the more staid version, uh, and I often wonder sometimes. Well, you know, maybe you should let this guy just kind of do his thing. Yeah, and I think in something like One Hour Photo, it actually works pretty well. Um, I have my issues with that movie, but I think he's really good in it, and and I think the thing that's really that's really effective is that because it's Robin Williams and we sort of know that this guy is just this, you know, just this ball of energy and to see him play this character that's so repressed, you really feel that this guy's sitting on, on a, a mountain of, and I think in the case of that movie, it's rage. Like I think, they're taking the the kind of Robin Williams energy and turning it into rage, essentially. But but there is this feeling that he's just sitting on this mountain of energy, and you're waiting for him to explode. So I think in that movie it, it works pretty well. Um, Insomnia, not as much, but it has a similar effect, I think. But 
Um, but yeah, it seems like the majority of movies that like his more acclaimed performances, I'm not really a huge fan of them. Yeah. Like I prefer, yeah. Like I prefer the Fisher King or even his little part in, um, another Gilliam movie, Baron Munchausen when they go to the moon. I don't know if, have you guys seen that? I don't know if you guys have seen that, but they, they go, they go to the moon and he's like this weird, I don't even know what he is. He's just this weird, this weird creature. Um, who I quite, I quite, yeah, I, I, when did that come out? 89. 89. Actually, have you guys seen the uh, Don Quixote movie that Gilliam finally got to make after like, No, a- after the rigmarole of him trying to get it and the, the documentary and everything, I just... I I really liked it, man. I, I, I just watched it like last month. I, and I'm a huge Gilliam fan and I was... You know, I I go to the mat for Gilliam. I even like Tideland, and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, but I I for some reason I think for the same reasons as you I because it was so, you just heard about it for so long and I think I just thought I don't know man maybe he should have just let it be but I I really liked it I thought yeah I thought it was quite good I you know. I suspect it would have maybe been a greater film if he had made, I think it's a bit of a gangs in New York situation where, you know, I enjoy gangs in New York. I really like it, but to think about what the 1978 version of gangs in New York would have been with Malcolm McDowell as bill, the butcher, the clash doing the music. It's like Scorsese coming off taxi driver. I mean, that would have just been, you know, that would have been incredible. Uh, the gangs in New York from the early 2000s is, you know, it's Scorsese tamed a little bit, I guess. So it loses something. I don't think this is Gilliam tamed exactly, but it's just, it's Gilliam old. He's just old, you know, <laughs> like he's, he's like almost 80 years old. Right. So I think there's a, there's an exuberance that, I, I think the younger Gilliam would have brought to it that I would have liked to have seen, but I, 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 you know, I'll take this. It was, it was, I thought it was a good movie. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. You know, sometimes I wonder whether or not all of the people who I remember being uh, rebellious when I was very young, like rebellious filmmakers, like your, you know, Scorsese's or your Coppola's, or, you know, to your lesser extent, maybe even your Soderbergh's and your Tarantino's in the 90s were really as rebellious. Would they have been as rebellious if I would have been my age currently watching them? Right. You know, like if I had been yeah. 38 years old right. watching Out of Sight or Sex, Lies and Videotape or, you know, Pulp Fiction or sorry. Reservoir Dogs, would I have thought it, wow, this is, this is crazy. This is why I'm watching something new and interesting. Or would I have sort of viewed it in the same way as, you know, that article that you had sent around, Jason, that written from that Marxist Mm. person. And usually whenever 
<laughs> whenever people mention the two phrases cultural hegemony and neoliberalism <laughs> turn off i like you I, know well, i start it, smelling weird things and i say like, because uh, it this, doesn't this well the thing that's interesting about that article is one i can imagine the 20 year old me reading that and saying right fucking on man yeah you know like it would have been i would have been totally into it right but i think for me the main reason i sent it and i think you're hitting on it rf is there's this feeling so two things one thing happened just before i read the article so eli roth has this documentary series uh history of horror uh that's been airing on amc the last episode just aired last saturday um it's really good it, he did two seasons of it now um so each episode they talk about different facets of horror so they've done like slashers they've done you know possession movies body horror um but the last episode was kind of it was just called nine nightmares and he basically just talked about nine films that were just very impactful on him essentially so one of the ones he talked about was us the jordan peele movie okay um and um so in the interview jordan peele is talk you know he's talking about the movie and he says something and the way he says it you can tell that it's meant to be this transgressive statement, right? He says, like he's talking about why he likes making films with black protagonists. And so, you know, part of it is the, you know, the kind of sociological element, like he's, he's making these kind of what he calls social horror movies. But it's also that he says a black person is going to, react differently to this kind of danger because living in America is a horror show for black people. And I was, and all I could think was I am so sick of this kind of shit where people say these things that are absolutely mainstream opinions i mean this is such a mainstream opinion and it's but it's be it's like it's like some weird like we're all being gaslit into thinking that this isn't actually what wesley yang i don't know if you guys know who wesley yang is but what he refers to ideology yeah. yeah yeah but what he referred to as the elite consensus you know like this is the elite consensus like the the point of view that is being espoused in so many of these movies now that are considered transgressive. They're really just espousing this point of view. And, and the thing about Get Out is, and Us is that I see both of these movies as they're really movies about the fear of the elites, right? Like Get Out is really... About, like they it's positioned and talked about because it seems more it makes it seem more important if you make it seem like this is a movie that's dealing with the fears that all black people face like this is just how black people feel in America this is really a movie about how 
an elite black person feels or a certain kind of elite black person feels being welcomed into, you know, the elite circles of white society, what they would deem white society and the kind of microaggressions, the benevolent racism that they have to deal with where they're in the back of their mind, they're wondering, is there something sinister about this? Is there something, you know, like, is there like, that's what that movie really is. That's the fear of that movie. It's the, like, you know, it's the fear of like, I'm dealing with these seemingly benign, good liberal kind of white people, but is there actually something sinister behind this, subtle racism that I'm picking up off of them. Like, that's really what that movie's about. And that's the kind of fear that it's playing on. Because I just have to assume that, uh, you know, the average kind of working class black person isn't that dissimilar to the average working class person of any other ethnicity. You got more shit to worry about. You don't have time. Like, Like, that's a very it's a very uh to use their term privileged kind of concern to have i think i just don't think when you're you know working a fucking job you hate and you're trying to pay the bills and all these other concerns that we all deal with day to day i just don't know if worrying about microaggressions is really something that we all worry about i like get out i will say that i do actually like get out i think it's a good movie i enjoy it but this idea that it's tapping into some yeah the idea that it's transgressive or something i i think it's very much reflecting a point of view that's very main you know mainstream um at least a certain kind of mainstream opinion. So I think when I read that article, as much as there was a lot of stuff in it that I thought, Jesus Christ, dude, (laughs) when I'm reading it, but I, you know, I, I get, I get how this to someone who maybe feels like they do have radical politics that they have what they would perceive as, you know, genuinely radical politics, I see how this kind of thing would probably rub that person the wrong way. I mean, it rubs me the wrong way. I find it, I find it very um, irritating. What's the name of the article again, just for listeners? Uh, Arts moral fetish. You know, it made me actually feel a strange empathy for Marxists. Um. I'm not a huge fan of Marxism. I don't think that would come as any surprise <laughs> to, to either of you. I mean, leaving aside my problems with the ideology, I, I, I've taught it for years and it, it just, it's hard to get enthusiastic about it. But it, th- that article did make me pause and think about where Marxists fit in the current political yeah. conversation because they're, they're all but marginalized in 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 the departments that used to be their home sociology social science departments they're all but marginalized 
there's always you always find a token marxist somewhere but you know they're usually from bulgaria or something like that like they're just you know they're just trying they, they don't know how the elevator works you know so in navigating that that social space it's not really their forte but it's um you, you know or or or, or you know uh, and our will know who i'm talking about sort of old school italian americans you know they're just kind of keeping their head down yeah 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 they can uh, they, yeah. they don't understand how to work the dvd player on a pc exactly. but can roll a joint one handed in a shed yeah. with one light dangling over them yeah it's yeah. just you know different <laughs> skills yeah. yeah it's a different skill set but i mean it's uh, you know the 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 champagne socialist aside but i mean it's uh, where do they cuz I honestly think, you know, it's like this, it goes back to like some of the best critiques I've seen in of religion, of one particular religion, let's say Christianity or Islam, actually come from other religious people. They don't actually come from atheists. I know atheists like to pat themselves on the back and they figured out all the logical arguments, but typically the most persuasive arguments actually come from other religious people. Yeah. And I feel like something similar is happening with Marxism. Another bullshit you know, faux radical cult-like ideology. Marxists actually do a better job of critiquing the woke left, yeah, than than people who are on the on on, the, on sort of more on the I don't know what you call them centrist or or, or center right spectrum, yeah, yeah. The rationalist spectrum, so called, yeah. Um, and this and it makes me feel bad for them because. The, their voices are pretty much drowned out. Like most Marxists are just kind of like hiding in their bunkers, so to speak these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Marxist language is out there. The socialist language, the communist language is all out there, but they're not really Marxists and socialists. You know, why do you think that is like, why are they hiding? Well, I think, I think, deep down they know that if they actually go this sound ridiculous but i think it's true if they actually go full marxist they'll be done even more than they're done already as 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 part of the intellectual class cuz they're just hanging on by a thread like they've been re- they were replaced by postmodernism and then postmodern whatever post postmodernism has has kind of taken hold in in, in the intellectual communities <laughs> You know, what is I mean, it that's, about? What, that's, where, that's where Marxists are, right? They're in academia for the most part. They're, they're writing in, they, they write in these small publications with a readership of 20 people. Right. It, you know, it's like a, it's like a strange. Uh... <laughs> what do you think there's behind this disconnect between the intellect? Ah, fuck them. All right. Between the philosophical grounding of Marx and its, and his cultural value that, are so contradictory to each well, other. Well, I think so that's what's happening, right? Like, well, well, I think it's. I, I think in this article, I think he does hit on part of what it is. It's that. It's that I think the the type of the kind of faux Marxist or the you know like what what what's that term Jordan Peterson. The cultural, cultural, cultural the, cult, the cultural yeah. Marxists. I think they, they like he calls them neo Marxists, doesn't he? They, they like the, it, it's um, 
it's cosplay, right? Like they they like the aesthetic of Marxism. They like the aesthetic of the Che Guevara flag. They they like the signifiers of that. They like people thinking of them as these kind of radicals, but really, uh, I mean, to stick with the, you know, the, the Marxist terminology, this is the bourgeoisie. This is the bourgeoisie um, who are really, they're just play acting, you know? And, and I think there's something, it's also that, so the modern left has this problem and it's obviously tied to this Marxist issue, but as much, you know, as much as Marxism is, is, you know, is a, is a defunct ideology that would be best put to bed at this point. When I think when the left, I think it's that the left abandoned the working class and, and Marxism is all about a class analysis of society. So they're, they're taking the, the tools of that almost like they're like the academics who sort of participate in this, this new way. Well, yeah. Like was Johnson said, like post post modernism or whatever the hell it is, you know, they sort of take the, the tools of, of that, but it's all focused on identity. And, and, and I think this is very much, an ideology for the upper classes of society, you know, like the, I just don't think there's really anything of any real substance to offer people of, uh, you know, of a work of working class background, you know, or, or like, or uh, who are in the working class. Like, and, and, and I think they, I think what this person is getting at with all of his kind of harping on about neo neoliberalism is, or I'll put it to you this way. How, how radical can an ideology really be when every major corporation in the, in the world seems to be paying lip service to it? You know, like there's something amiss when they're the ideolo- the true believers and ideologues are presenting themselves as being these radicals trying to upend society and yet most of the like I say you know major corporations and a lot of very powerful influential people who you would think in theory stand the most to lose from an ideology that claims to want to upend society seem to have no issue kissing its ass and paying lip service to it, you know? But I think what John is saying, and there's a cleavage here, or there's a strange cleavage here, is that they have the people who are fronting on this, on this this kind of sort of latter-day wokeism are disconnected from the 
ideological and philosophical roots that it wants to point itself at. Yeah. Like, outside of the church, it uh, outside of the outside of the church and all of the religious institutions, Marxists were the only ones who gave a shit about philosophy and ideology. Uh, this is this is actually a great. It reminds me of something. I, I was teaching. I was teaching a. I was teaching about Marx um, in a, in a sociology course. I don't know a year or so ago. RF, and uh, I was going over Marx's ideas about alienation from labor. And, and, you know, just Cole's notes version of this, does Cole's notes even exist? So simplistic version of this for, <laughs> for listeners. What is this, the 80s? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, basically, you know, you had these cottage industries that were done at home, uh, you know, and people, you know, they might have a baker in a village who made bread, but you also had access to the bread oven. So once the baker was done, you'd go in there, you'd use use the bread oven. That's how you make. That's how you make your bread, and then you do a lot of stuff at home. And everything that you did, it was you. You owned it. You owned the product of it. You know, it's like you get up in the morning. Well, if I'm going to feed myself today, I have to do X, Y, and Z. And you do that, and you'd have this sense of pride. And then you get the industrial revolution, and you have these. Uh, the cottage industry disappears because people are moving into urban environments. You have factories and people are working in factories and it's the classic thing. Like you're just, you're putting widgets into other, other widgets and you don't own it. You don't own any of the profits. You get a small salary, et cetera. So you're alienated from your labor. You don't have that personal pride in your labor. And a student who was listening to me talk about this and, and, and I, you know, I, I try to have a conversation in, in the room with students when, about these issues. And they're like, how come no one ever talks about this when they talk about Marxism? Because it seems to me that this is the most, like basically that this is the most, this resonates more with me than all of the proletariat bourgeoisie stuff. This resonates more with me than the false consciousness stuff, which came later. This resonates more with me than the critique of capitalism. It's the fact that I don't actually own anything that I'm using my body hour after hour after hour to engage in. Why, why, you know, this is, this is what's exciting. And it's fascinating to me that for the most part, a public discourse about Marxism has completely left this behind, even though it's foundational and it's personal you know, and it's visceral, like even people who are not Marxists can understand, can connect with that. And yet it's completely divorced from our talk about Marxism. Now it's all about income inequality and toppling the rich, you know, let the streets run red with blood. It's this kind of nonsense. And it's like, that's not, I hate to be one of those people. That's not what Marx said. Because I mean, Marx said a lot of awful stuff, but if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to critique marxism or you're going to take on marxism take on the most interesting elements of marxism well i think this is a good place to bring in that other article that jason sent us which is the which is that piece from the new york magazine i think about the you know workings of the new yorker right oh the I new mean, york this, times yeah sorry about the it, new the york inner works of the new york times yeah what did i anyway i said yeah. i said some nonsense but yeah, so if John and I were to be having this conversation, like, you know, typically John would be the person telling me, hey, man, you know, you're alien. I get it. You're alienated from your work. You're talking to an asshole on a headset all day. 
check this out you know check what check what this guy 400 years ago had to say about that right uh and i would say i you know i would come back with hey man philosophy philosophy you know i don't care I, i don't don't give me don't give me books to read don't give me fucking homework you know what i mean i am are you with me or against me that's all i care about mm-hmm. right and there is something you know i know john and i we went back and forth about but i don't know whether and you jason might be right and both of you guys might be right maybe anti intellectualism is not a word is the not the word for it but there is some uh all i can describe is just the failure to focus or the failure to pay attention is the best way that i can describe it i don't know what else to describe it like if i if you think about say that other figure that other article that we were talking about the, the that that article in tablet say joe rogan for instance right now joe rogan should be in a way a marxist hero he's a working class guy who is only driven by his curiosity and the ability to just have a conversation about it which you know he shouldn't by all by all accounts he is the exact the the kind of hero that you would expect out of you know in a in a marxist society you know someone who is not part of the bourgeoisie never was part of the bourgeoisie at all right he's only driven by uh, a desire to learn you know but yet he is hated by these people right well they and, have they have i mean they have contempt they they do have contempt for the working class um you know right, so it, you know yeah No, yeah, it is a, no, 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 you no. know, before we get into the working class thing and the, the contempt, I mean, I think there's lots of interesting things to unpack there. But I and I hope I'm not leading into a digression here, but No, no, no. I think I think away. we I think we need to address the fact that the that the way we talk about class has changed. <clears throat> so for yeah. example, I okay. I make pretty good money doing what I'm doing. Okay? And I'm supposed to be part of the intellectual class you know all the nonsense so i have a phd i teach in this i do whatever okay but there are welders that make more money than me and this is something that's distinct from what we had in the past where typically the prestige was connected with wealth mm-hmm. we're no longer in that situation so when we talk about a working class person well what's the classic example of working class person someone that's a truck driver Well, some truck drivers in the United States make 100k a year. Now, there's all kinds of caveats that go along with that, you know, they may not have pension savings and whatnot, but the reality is they make pretty good incomes. They make middle-class incomes doing relatively menial work. And I'm not saying anything about truck drivers that their work doesn't require any challenge. But some of those fields actually the challenge level has gone up. Like to be a welder today before back in the day it was just a guy with a a torch and a face shield if you were lucky but these days they have to take some ke- chemical engineering that takes some mechanical engineering it's much more complex than it used to be, used to be and the reason i'm mentioning all of this is that 
when we talk about the working classes, who are the working classes any, today? They're not the working classes that Marx was talking about. They're not the working classes of most of the 20th century. The working classes today, honestly, are people in the service industry. Yeah. Like that, that's what we mostly think of people that are flipping burgers and, you know, and, 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 and giving out coffee, Let leaving aside the fact that those people would have been considered of a higher station than the working They're working class at Cytel selling vacuum cleaners in St. John yeah. <laughs> yeah. on the late shift. Yeah. So that complicates the whole thing. And so now you can have a wealthy class of people, a relatively wealthy class of people, a middle, upper middle class people who have very little education, don't care about art, okay? And they live relatively blue collar lifestyles on a middle class dime. And I think that's what complicates this whole Well, I situation. think it's, I, I've heard, I have heard people talk about this idea before and I do think it's more to do with culture as opposed to class now or class, like you say, in the traditional sense. So it's more, you know, if, if you're someone who, you know, reads the New York times and you, um, you know, it, like it, it, it's kind of they kind of get into this in that article, don't they? RF the one about Joe Rogan, they where they they talk about the idea that, or at least I heard somebody say this recently about Joe Rogan. It's that if you're of what's considered an elite class of person, you don't listen to Joe Rogan. You know, like Joe just, Rogan, even though Joe, like it's ridiculous to think of Joe Rogan as a working class person at this point, because I mean, he made a, he has a, you know, hun, like a hundred million dollars, but he does things that culturally, uh, the, the supposed elites of society find um, repulsive, you know, he hunts. He he likes MMA. Well, he, he's, y- y- he's, you know. he's just, he's so, he, they can't wrap their head around him, right? Because he's a guy that's worth $150, $200 million or perhaps even more. And yet he has on his podcast more intellectual conversations with intellectuals than actual professional intellectuals have. Yeah. Like he, he, he takes, he has more convert. The conversations are longer. Yeah. He's actually ridiculous. Of course, asking Neil deGrasse Tyson about aliens. Okay. But putting that aside, he, he's living more of an intellectual life yeah. than tenured professors in ma- in major universities. And that, that completely unbalances the apple cart because we, what do we even do with that? Well, I think in the, in, in my response, um, two guys when we were talking about the idea of anti-intellectualism what I think the point I had ended on was that if if one is curious now you don't need a university education to be able to educate yourself in you know classic literature philosophy it's the Will Hunting speech man we always went back to it. Remember when we were doing the radio show? 
Yeah. It's always that line. You spend 150 grand on a fucking education. You could have spent on $20 in late charges at the public library. Yeah. Like, but now it's even easier because yeah. of the internet, right? Like, but absolutely it's, it, you know, I, and I think, and, and like I said in my response that even, you know, I understand not everybody does this and I, I don't, I, I don't want to get into percentages or how many, but I, I have to assume that people like, you know, like myself who I just work a job at a call center, you know, I'm just by, I'm just a regular person, you know, with, you know, wife and kid, you know, house, um, and just in my spare time, I'm educating myself, you know, I'm following the things that I'm curious about, that I'm interested about. And I have to assume that there's a lot of people doing that. And I think Joe Rogan is somebody who has made a living out of doing that. And, and I think it's, it, it's phenomenal, you know, like, yeah, I agree with what you said, John, he's ridiculous as well. There's a lot about Rogan that's, it can be a bit foolish, you know, um, you know, friends with Alex Jones, stuff like that. But, but, um, but, but honestly, it's, it's, but that's also a very class thing, class-based thing. You know, this is a guy like, I think if you grow up in a certain rung of society, the idea of breaking a friendship over an ideological difference is very anathema to you. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah, And I think for a certain kind of person, if they've not been indoctrinated to a certain extent, it would, you know, it's very easy to just be like, I'm done with you because you said a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think like from my level, like I think I grew up in a certain kind of class. I think that, you know, you don't, you just don't like, this is very, uh, this is very rich people thing to do things where he said a thing and yeah. so my friendship with you is gone you know what well, I mean that I, I think with loyalty the, is a big thing i think you I, know and well well i think with the cancel culture that's one of the things that i've i actually find most repulsive about it it's the idea that you're supposed to stop being friends with people because of ideas that they have yeah, you, you know don't abandon your friends um, no matter what yeah yeah like and, and you know, and I know that, you know, I think Danny Glover and Jodie Foster, who I don't think is, are people that anyone would consider um, to be, you know, alt-right or anything. I mean, they've come in for a lot of flack because they're still friends with Mel Gibson. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg faced the same yeah. sort of thing, you know? yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. and it's just ridiculous. It's like, well, they're friends. Like they know him. Yeah, you don't know. You don't of, know him. You know. I think if you've just, I can only gather. I can only imagine that it's a class-based thing. I only say that is because, like, I'm reading Martin Amos's account of Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. and it's very strange. Like they're best friends, but at certain times, like I think he doesn't understand why the alliances that Christopher Hitchens has very young at his, you know, when he's very young, he just finds it hard to let go of them. 
He's like, why doesn't he just let go? It's just so silly. And I think there's some sort of difference there. I think it's because maybe Hitchens grew up a little bit poorer than Martin Amis. And I think when you grow up a little bit poorer, you know, these... Yeah, it's a relative well, thing, right? I mean, Hitchens grew up fairly wealthy, but Amos no, 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 was Hitch. more... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder if maybe it has something to do... I mean, if it is a class thing, maybe it has something to do with the fact that, you know, you you kind of need a network of people to help you out more, right? Like, like if you come for, if you're wealthy, not that you don't need help, but, but you, you can, but you can be a little more self-sufficient, right? They'll but all I just mean, come around. It's just like a reward. It's just like one yeah. of those hotel doors. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. Like, but, but I mean, when you're just keep coming in and out, but, you know, but, but I remember, you know, I remember be, you know, being a kid and I mean, my parents needing to borrow money from friends or, needing to borrow money from you know my grandparents or whoever it is but i i think there's just more of a i think because you kind of help each other out and i think just that alone builds probably builds a sense of 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 loyalty um you know and 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 I think, you know, but now, I mean, the idea is definitely, you know, somebody votes for Trump, even if it's your own mother, you should disown them. I mean, that's just such a ridiculous this is This idea. is viewed as the most uh, politically radical position that you could actually take is abandoning people that <laughs> have cared about you for years. Right? right? Exactly. Like, but it's a very self-destructive position. Like, I don't think oh, yeah. they are not going to win this on that front because most people would say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, no, sure, yeah, no, I'll abandon him." Whatever you say, well, you know. Well, I saw. I I was listening to a a podcast today with uh, Yasha Monk, uh, and um, uh, famous white and, supremacist, and he was. Yeah. <laughs> A Jew, Jewish guy who grew up in Germany actually is his uh, is his background. He talked about yeah, it a sure little, a likely story. Likely, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I, that's what I said. I said, yeah, don't give me that shit. Mm. But um, but um, but but measure uh, his nose is what I say. Find <laughs> how many nickels does he have in his pocket? <laughs> but but the, he was talking about the idea that one of the reasons he thinks wokeism will eventually lose is because of how fucking miserable it is. And and he said, and ultimately the woke don't have the military. Like the only way to enforce, uh, you know, an ideology that's ultimately going to make everybody miserable is through military force. And basically they're just trying to use means that you would call social coercion and, and ultimately, if enough people stand up to it, it's very easy to destroy the ability for social coercion to work. And I think, you know, I think wokeism 
I mean, yeah, that's it's just fucking joyless. It's joyless. It's so. I mean, everybody I know who who adopts this ideology um, or anyone I have known, I, I admittedly, I'm not really friends with many people now who still adopt this, but I mean, they're just miserable. Like they're just, I mean, y- you can't even talk to them. And the, and the, the art that they produce is not notable either. I mean, the, the, you know, if you want to, we should do a ranking of authoritarian movements and the art that they produce. Yeah. Like these guys are not in the top 10, that's for sure. No, man, absolutely. I I agree with that. I mean, I mean, Jesus like like if we if we consider Battle of Algiers a Marxist film, like they got man, they got nothing even even approaching that. Like it's I I mean, it's so boring. It, there's no there's no creativity. They're not creative. They don't produce anything. They're entirely focused on actually tearing things down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I just, and I think because they, they pull, you know, they, it's, it's because, and I think to be an artist, you can't, uh, to be a good artist, you need to follow your instincts. But when you follow your instincts, you might uncover something or show something to the world that might like in in a climate like this if you're that concerned about not wanting to seem a certain way or to have the wrong politics then you need to self-censor you can't just follow your instincts and let them run wild because you might create something that that people will interpret incorrectly so you need to make sure at every step of the way that you're putting forth the correct ideas, which is propaganda. I mean, and I believe in that article I sent you guys, he refers to it as such. The guy, which I mean, it seems a little funny for a Marxist to be talking about propaganda, but that's, but you know, fair, you know, but that's fine. <laughs> but I do, I do think he, he does refer to it that way. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I feel. Like when I watch a lot of these, movies i mean they're they're telling you what to think there's no room for interpretation there's no room for you know kind of creative flights of fancy when thinking about it it's just it's just straightforward dogmatic um you know, it's a, it's like Ken Loach has finally found his moment. Ken Loach is, you know, he's this kind of dreadful filmmaker that everybody knows is dreadful. You got, and, and, you know, we caught, because he's around doing his own thing, film people kind of are like, yeah, he's okay. Like he's always been one of those where people say like, yeah, he's all right, I guess. But, but he just it, his movies are just so dogmatic in their politics that for the most part they're yeah they're just these kind of dreadful movies and um but he's really found i think he's really found his moment this is this is you know the the kind of ken loach moment for art yeah but i think that that is um the only way that this 
and I'm stealing someone else's idea probably, but this is uh, the only way they lose a hold of the culture is if they are made to look profoundly uncool. And the only way that can happen is from people who are not like 10 years. Like it'll, it'll have to be like my 10-year-old will have to... Yeah. Like my 10-year-old started the other day. I took... <laughs> I don't swear or anything around her, but I had a, I had a problem in the morning. My... Um, the underwear that I was wearing, I just realized uh, ripped shit out yourself? the front. Huh? No, I didn't shit myself. What the fuck? Well, I know you're having problems with regularity. No. When? No? What did I told what you, last time you? What was the last time you had a good bowel movement? This morning. What are you talking about? I'm eating salads and shit. I mean, what we're all getting about? old, man. I mean, we need to. No, I'm eating dates and stuff. What are you talking about? And I told you not to mention it publicly and you keep doing it. So your underwear, you, you tore out the crotch. Yeah, I tore out the crotch. I don't know why you have to mention the shit problem, but I'm gonna edit this out in post anyway. Sure. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah. So. So it's more of a prostate issue. No, it wasn't a prostate issue. It was a completely. I, my prostate is fine. It's completely normal right now. It's penis. Right now. Is, yeah, I mean, in general, penis is looking good. It's pretty much like proportional to this. Like Your body everything. size. Everything. Obviously. It would look ridiculous if it was too large, right? It's definitely not too small, right? So don't even worry about that, right? So what So what happened? Don't even question, yeah. So crotch is blown out. It's basically I'm just wearing an elastic. Or I'm wearing a garter belt basically around my waist. And we go into the... I don't swear around my daughter. So this is... I'm for sure this is not coming from me. We go into the Mark's wear, work warehouse... And I tell her to just go somewhere else, go look for a jacket or something like that. Because I got to go look for underwear. I was like, I'm not going to bring you, my 10-year-old girl, into the male underwear section. So she's my daughter. She doesn't listen to me. So she just ends up, I'm looking at some boxes. She turns around and she's like, hey, dad. I was like, oh, fuck, she's in the, and she's like, do you want to look at the gayest pair of underwear I've ever seen? In the Marx work. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But I I think you're right, man. I th- I think I, I wonder about that with like, you know, Sahar and Ripley's generation if like those are gonna be like like if those kids are gonna grow up and see all this stuff and just think what in the fuck is this? And, you know, and it's funny, the idea that, like, right now they're kind of immune to it. I think they've managed to put themselves up on a pedestal. So even though there are, like, I think most people who aren't indoctrinated into the cult of wokeism laugh at it and mock it like it is something that everybody does and it doesn't seem cool. And these people do seem like just a bunch of pearl clutchers which is definitely not a a cool look um but i think they've kind of uh, inoculated themselves from it by again putting themselves up on a pedestal and being like oh these are just you know like they always convince themselves that anyone who makes fun of them or mocks them as an alt-right troll that's kind of their 
that that's their get out of jail free card. Like, no, no right thinking person could possibly think we're a bunch of uptight assholes who are completely devoid of any joy and human, you know, human happiness. Um, but I think the longer it goes on and the more people start, you know, just keep mocking them and like you say, making them look uncool, uh, it'll lose its appeal. I, I think I, I really think I, th- I think I agree. I think boredom, boredom, all, all, cultural boredom is, a, is sort of the great equalizer. And it is boring. It, it, yeah, like absolutely. I think it's at the point where, you know, you you hear these people go going on about their bullshit, and you just you can't even believe it. You just you can't believe it that they and 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 do you notice that there's no there's no evolution to the thought. It's the same fucking shit that like the st- like the same arguments that they've been making since we first started talking about this crap before it even really had a name when we were just kind of noticing these trends in the universities and that and it's just it's the same shit it it doesn't evolve it doesn't change at all it's you know i came it, across it, it, someone... it casts a wider net but yeah you're right it doesn't change I came across someone, uh, John, who we went to school with. Uh, like, you know, they were in the social sciences, humanities, whatever. And, you know, their Facebook personality is just the equivalent of the other day they posted up something about uh, Candace Owens being... Uh, and you know this was someone who was posting people things about like who is or is not uh, a black lives matter supporter in their in their community and suddenly she's like you have to go to the march and all of this stuff and then something Candace Owens said something about Harry Styles or something like that oh where to, yeah I, I heard about this Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens and she yeah. says uh says uh, I had not heard about this person. She talked about Candace Owens. I had not heard about this person, but researching it further, uh, it appears as though she's a black Ann Coulter. I was like, what does her race have to do with the fact that she just disagrees with whatever your opinion about masculinity or femininity was? And then this is a most startling thing. This is what they post. is like, um, I've... Uh, uh, went to their Facebook page and Candace Owens' Facebook page, and I saw that a number of businesses were following them, was fo- were following her. Uh, so uh, be careful about the kinds of businesses you um, uh, <laughs> you endorsed, uh, lest you fall into the wrong opinion. I was like, <laughs> what kind of an education did you get? Like, did we get the race the same education? Like, we went to the same classes. What happened? And some of these people, John, like, they take, like, a weird, like, uh, it's, like, almost a point of pride for them. They never have the thing where they, like, after the university degree was done, where they're, like, what if I was wrong about something? You know, that little nagging thing in your head where you're, like, wait, did I get this whole thing wrong? Like, when they get that sense in their head, they're, like, you know, that's a box that they immediately, or that's a drawer that they immediately shut. 
You know what I mean? Like that's not a drawer that they open and they root around in. Do you know what I mean? Which is not something that I imagine the two of you guys do, right? Which is either you guys are extremely curious or completely mentally ill, right? Because most people don't do that. Most people don't head towards the things, you know, think that they might be wrong about something and then head in that direction. You know, what could I have possibly been wrong about? A lot of people that we went to school with within the social sciences and humanities were just like, you know, that that day, that beautiful day in uh, whatever, June or May or whenever the graduation ceremony is, they put the hat on, they're like, yep, time's up, we're done now. No more reading. No, I have to don't do any more reading. You well, know, I don't they, have to do, my education is done. Well, I mean, that's... Or at least that's what it seems like. Anyway. Well, well I, I've wondered, it's funny, that comment that this person made about, you know, she's the black, she's the black and culture. Um, I was I was just talking about this with, with Carly today, and I was saying, you know, in like 20 years, you know, maybe less, I don't know. I mean, it could be more, but there's going to come a time when this wokeism is no longer fashionable and people have, it's truly been exposed for the absolute crock of shit that it is. And, and we're going to, and we're going to look back on all the ridiculous shit these people have said about race. And it, you're going to look at it like it's like somebody talking about fucking phrenology or something. Like we're just, we're going to be, astonished at how racist these people are and and it's with you know it, we always say like oh with good intentions i mean you know maybe but i think shelby Steele, uh who's been i've been listening to a few interviews with him recently and he did that movie what killed michael brown and he sort of talks about this idea that the majority of of our racial politics now it's it's more about alleviating white guilt that that's really been one of the driving factors of of our racial politics for the last you know 40 50 years it's been more about that it's been um you know and 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 i think I mean, it's just crazy to me, like the stuff that these people say. I mean, the fact that they can't see that the idea that you assume somebody is supposed to think something because of their race is racist. Like, I don't have another word for that. That's, That's it. So it's old school racism. Yes, it's literally the definition of racism. Like I don't I don't understand it. It's it's insane to me. Like even Joe Biden engaged in this shit. Remember when he said uh um if you if you if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. And he actually said ain't. He said you ain't. Yeah, for some reason black. throwing in the ain't is just the cherry on top. If you're if you're down in there in Scranton, if you don't vote for me, you're you're a jive turkey. That's what you're jive turkey. I'm just imagining a Sydney Portier movie or something. Something is coming to mind here. But it's yeah. I mean, it's just it's just baffling to me that that these these people are 
I mean, they're some of the most racist people around. It's it's yep, just we're, sur- we're surrounded by actual racists running a anti-racism campaign, accusing other people who are not racist of being racist. Yeah, that's the world we live in now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether the like at some level, John, when you and I were going, I don't know whether this ever crossed your mind. Maybe this is a fucking. It's a really homo thing to say, but it's like, at some level, I thought that at least the social sciences, whatever it was in terms of job, at least I thought, I'm, <laughs> the the one thing that I'm going into this education for is to hoping to understand what is true. If I can understand something about what is true and what is not true you know, regardless of whether I not, because I'm not learning any skills. At some level, I sort of resigned myself to the idea that I'm not really learning any, like, I am just fucking reading here and, you know, looking through databases, you know, and hoping to understand something about what is true. And by understanding that, I'd be able to live some sort of sane life, right? It's like, but that is not the education that other people within the social sciences were having. Like, that is not, the vast majority of people were not getting that at all. Like, that is not what they were in there for. They were in there for completely different reasons. Well, they, uh, well, do you, I mean, but do you think it's a situation where, uh, even if, because I think even if they got into it for those reasons, it's, uh, I, I mean, a true, a truly rigorous intellectual scholar would look at a problem and they would investigate the problem and they would see what they find. And then based on what they find, you know, they would try to figure out what might be the cause of the problem. But now it's, we know what the problem is. We have the ideological framework and any investigating that we do, we're going to do it to prop up this position that we already have. You know, it's basically the difference between, you know, a, a, a like a Michael Moore documentary and, uh, you know, like, Frederick Wiseman who kind of makes these like almost like ethnographic kind of studies of whatever like his current one is about City Hall in Boston you know where he just kind of goes in there with his camera and sees what he finds Um, whereas Michael Moore is going in with a very specific agenda and I think if you were a truly rigorous scholar you would approach it that way, you know? Listen, so, Jason, I don't mean to sound like, I didn't mean to sound, I apologize. I didn't mean to sound pretentious uh, in that instance. I'd realized that I did because like, regardless of what I just said, I was still a short immigrant drunk and chasing pussy for most of my university career. Like that is what I had, like that is what my goal was most of the time. Well, thank you for the backtracking. <laughs> I think that was... <laughs> My clarification was both necessary and desirable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I put it in terms of I am chasing truth, but 
I remember John and I sitting at uh, a few moments where you were lucid, you were seeking truth. What do you talk about? (laughs) I was always seeking truth there in Tucker, in in Colonel Tucker's on, you know, wing night, Um, you know, small talking with the bartender. Oh, hey. Oh, yeah. You in English class? What are you reading now? Remember? What are you What are you reading now? Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, Dickens. Oh yeah, I read it. I never read any Dickens. Um, I just lied, pretty much the whole time. <laughs> you know, more the more I think about that, you you were basically like a fourteen year old artsy girl. That's basically the <laughs> way you, you were about? in university. Because I mean, you also would do the book thing. You'd put a you'd put a book out on a desk or a table. You know, just that so people were walking by. Fuck you. They could that see. They could see. They could see what you were reading, and then you could kind of like, you could kind of twirl your hair, and bat, you know, just roll your this eyes is, at the pleats. This is a character you know, assassination. Walk, this is all walk. going to be edited. This is a brutal character assassination. Then you cut yourself later. To cut his up. mic. Cut his yeah. mic, please. Defe- yeah, to cut his mic. To, cut to the feel feet. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's I, quite enough for you, John. I, I, that is I, a huge. I can't believe I, it. Yeah, I hate I hate thinking about myself when I was in university. That's a fucking embarrassment. Like I, I mean, I would, <laughs> like I, I remember I would get into. That's these, not true, Jason. You I, were very, I, I, you were very knowledgeable. One hundred. I, I, I'm, I'm uh, sorry. About, I'm going to rebut you <laughs> before you fall into this pit of self hatred. I'm going to let you fall into it, but before you do. Before you jump over into the cliff, I want you to look at me into the eye so we can kiss before you can <laughs> jump off. But I remember in our intro uh, film and society class, he, Joe, our sociology professor, would mention a film just offhand. Have, has anyone seen it? And then, of course, he would do the thing where he would pause for about five the Five classic minutes. pregnant pause. <laughs> Has anyone seen it? And you ever Jason... try that? You ever try that for fun? But I'll get I'll get on. It's not, it's worthwhile. Anyone who's in front of a classroom for any period of time, it's worthwhile trying the pregnant pause every once in a while because it's about facing your fears in a lot of ways. But anyway, Jason, uh, Jason, of course, was yes, I've seen that. Yeah, Jason. Jason would not only say yes, I've seen that. He would just provide like five minutes. So, like five minutes of his mo- deep monotone, so that Joe could <laughs> Joe could gather his thoughts about what, like whatever shit he about Godard he wants to regurgitate, you know, so that he can f- figure out how he can press play on the DVD player. But well, I I think with that, I mean, in that class, I you know, f- f- fair enough. I, I'm I'm okay with that. I, I think in that class, it was a little more genuine. Like I was just indulging in a passion that I had, I guess. But when I think about the way I was in some of these political classes I was in, like I definitely was going in like with a chip on my shoulder, you know, and it was this like, you know, like, like this working class guy. And I'm like these fucking, you know, these fucking rich assholes. And like, like I definitely was going in with this chip on my shoulder and I would just fucking berate these people. Like, but Jason, you were right. You were right each and every time. I can not think of a time when you were ever wrong in every class that I listen, I hate. Well that's you. the thing that's the thing though. When we go back and we think about what embarrasses us about our past selves, it's not that we were wrong. 
No, I was wrong. Uh, 100%. I mean, yeah, I, mean I was, I was wrong, wrong too, but that's not what embar- no, that's Jay, not what embarrassed. It's the way wrong. I it's the way I behaved. Yeah, it's the it's, it's not the, not it's not, not, the, not not reading the room. I yeah, still have I still have I still have nightmares. I have nightmares about this. This is not a true. Not. I was in it. I it was one of my it was either my first or my second uh year as an undergraduate. And I was in a in a class by uh uh Dan Downs. I don't care if he hears this. So, and Dan Downs went, like, to me, like, I'm not saying he's not impressive, but to me as an undergraduate, he was very impressive. Like, he just went from one thing to another and was able to connect two different concepts in a way that was engaging. And I, <laughs> this, this is so embarrassing. It's more, it's more embarrassing than R.S. letter to, uh, to Louis. I, I, I said... I said, and I quote, I quote here, wow, <laughs> you're more ready for this class than most people are for breakfast in the morning. <laughs> I said this out loud. You so in, in the class. <laughs> in the class. Oh I, you, the- oh, I thought you just said it to him. No, no, no. No, oh. I, sa- I was trying to compliment him. <laughs> and, and, he, and he looked at me, paused. <laughs> And said, well, you know, I'm a generalist. I, I left through the back and I could, students were actually in groups giggling and laughing about what I, like, it was like something out of a high school movie, you know, like how they're always, you always feel like everybody's always talking about you when they're not. In this case, they were actually talking about me. Like, what is this guy on? Like, <laughs> I I remember this one, this this one class where I had uh, I was in the class with science students, sci- science students, and somehow, but it was like a you know this was like a political class or it might have been like a sociology class. I honestly can't remember what class it was, but and and so the topic of science came up and i just go on this fucking rant about how like you know it oh the mistake we made uh, you know in human civilization was that we you know our science was all about dominating nature and not and these and these students keep pushing back on me they're just like what are you talking about dude what are you talking about just relax just calm down just stop it you're, you're talking shit but they're very nice like they're very they were being very polite with me and I'm just being such a fucking dick and like, a, like so self-righteous. And so, so it's stuff like that. That's, Oh yeah. It, that's I mean, the kind of stuff I'm talking about where I think back at it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. I, well, b- b- jumping off of what you just said, I, I'm pretty sure I almost started a riot because I was in over the stupidest thing. I was in a class with Murray Littlejohn and Maria Littlejohn was talking about that that about pornography and the problems of pornography, and that pornography has like one of the highest suicide rates for women out of any industry. <laughs> and I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I just I just belted out loud. That's not true. <laughs> like there wasn't. I didn't even pause. I just said that's not true. That's not true. So we proceeded yes. to get into. I kid you not, a 35-minute heated argument, just me and him, 
me and him in an auditorium packed with a hundred students. Yes. And I, I could, it. and I could hear students sighing, <laughs> and muttering to themselves. And I was like a dog with a bone. I would just not let it go. And Murray Littlejohn was stubborn motherfucker. He would not let it go either. So he just stood in the, in the, in the middle of the room, his legs splayed out, you know, like he was about to be hung and and he, and he, and he, you know, the arms wide and the eyes just like crazy, like full bipolar. And, and he's just talking about porn actresses committing suicide. Like just how many porn actresses commit suicide. And I, and I was just like, this is. Wow. So was he, was he bringing up, was he bringing up like specific statistics and you were just I'm like, what's st- what, who, first of all, how would you even do that study? Who, who is doing this study? Who is studying porn actress deaths? Like, it's just, it was just nonsense. And this isn't a critical thinking class. <laughs> this isn't a critical thinking class. I'm like, what method? Okay, explain to me. What's the, what's the journal? What, the Journal of Pornography Studies? Didn't exist yet. So what, you just, he John. couldn't provide anything. Yeah, so you won the argument. You were right. I don't see what the problem is. You, but it's, like, you're it's all great examples of a socially, good person. It's socially ridiculous. It's just Listen, socially ridiculous. These people are all idiots, and you were trying to put them in their place. And I think, listen, the audience member in me totally gets it. But the comic in me and the immigrant in me needs heroes like you. All right? <laughs> Heroes. Like you and Jason. Some, someone with no impulse control. That's right. Yeah, uh, that's, that's basically right. what that's what we need in this society. More people right. with no impulse control. That's right. Because right. all we have in India is too much impulse control. And what happens? Gang rape in a bus. All right? Wow. <laughs> that's what happens. That's... You, know, you know your life is over now, right? Like that's it. You're done. <laughs> well, that's what is it? Is it unfactual? Did that, did that not happen? <laughs> I'm not. I did not laugh at that. By the way, from people yeah, who no, are listening. That's not, no, 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 terrible. You no, didn't. Yeah, I said the N word, and that's when you laughed. Um, <laughs> the um, he just no, edited it to seem not as bad. That's Gang right. rape on a bus instead of the N word. <laughs> um. I don't see there's any problem with any of that. The worst problems, like I think both of you guys, like the worst things that you did in university when you like said disparaging things to me, like personally, that was sort of your worst moments. Like, to be honest, when you were like, oh, you don't know what you're fucking talking about. You've got bad, you've got body odor. You know, why are you an immigrant? That sort of thing. Like those were the most sort of things why, that you should be. Why? More ashamed why? Of. Why are you so? What? Why are you? Why are you championing this obviously insane person who's put together this program where he's gonna go fund the capture of Coney in Africa? You fucking remember that, RF? You remember that? You showed that fucking that yeah. fucking weird video yeah. that this guy made. Yeah, I'm still on his side. Go go get Coney, dude. I mean, we should get Coney, but the guy the guy I'm was on his side. I wanted. I mean, in that regard, I'm on his side. But the guy the 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 guy was clearly insane. And no, then I remember. Good guy. He's a good guy. And then guy. I remember a week later, he got 
he, he had a mental breakdown and he was Yeah, cuz people were saying nasty things about him on the internet. That's probably why. Yeah. Cuz you were fucking saying shit about him. Yeah. I, his only defender was, you know, was the you. lone hero. <laughs> I was his lone hero defending him on UNDSJ and you fucking twerps were badmouthing him because you didn't want you want more child soldiers. That's what you, you guys. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want child soldiers and you guys want child soldiers, right? It's that simple. That's right. <laughs> um well, so I mean it's a different culture, guys. I mean, I don't know. Who are we to judge Coney really? I mean, yeah, who are we to judge? Know. Whatever happened to? Did they ever find him? You know, because I'm so I'm such a humanitarian <laughs> and 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 I really care about the plight of people suffering around the world. I stopped following the story and I have no idea what what the outcome <laughs> of it, it up. ended up being. Whatever happened to Coney? I don't know. Um, I, I, but there is something when to bring it back to the to that Atlantic piece. The only reason I sent it to you because I remember that when we were going to university, there was this whole thing about you remember the thing about like every they're going to turn UNBSJ into a polytechnic. Do you remember? That? Oh, yep. You remember oh, yeah. that whole thing. Yep, yep. And ever since then, like, it's been nagging me about whether or not we were on the right side. Like, we had. Oh, me too. I had had misjudged the whole thing and I had misunderstood the person, you know? Yeah. I've thought thought of that too. And I think I was wrong. I think we were on the wrong side, or I was on the wrong side of it. Or at least I definitely didn't get the whole. Like I didn't. I, I didn't put thing. any work into it, to be honest. It just seemed. It put... just seemed like that they, they were going to get rid of. You know, thought, and. Uh... Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, yeah, that's absolutely the way I viewed it too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're going to totally... stop thinking, stop people from thinking about yeah. anything, and just make people into. Yeah. Laborers or something. Yeah, it's going yeah. to be the end of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and you know who's yeah. going to put the pillow over our heads. Yeah, I'm be- going to be. Yeah, be- because yeah, because I mean, we we wouldn't. And 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 I. But do you think part of it? And I do wonder about that too. If we were wrong, and I think there's a good chance we might have been. But is part of it that what the at this point what the university is churning out is garbage like what they're teaching is garbage like is that is that why you you feel that way i mean i know for me personally that's why i feel that way but but then part of me wonders is that is that valid i you know cuz I, I mean cuz yeah. cuz can you say it's objectively Garbage. I mean, it seems like garbage to me, and these ideas seem like shit. But I mean, in my best, it's just because I don't agree, right? Yeah. In my best moments, all I can say is that the two things that the time in the humanities and social sciences provided me was the access to have long conversations with people who had just as many meandering interests as I did, mainly you. Yeah. And John and a couple of other people. Yeah. That is the best 
with like that's and that's what they mean by like contacts right like those are the kind of contacts but but i mean there there's there's three to four aspects of the modern <clears throat> university what one is a, a is a sort of uh social networking mixed with um ritual and transition ceremonies which is where the you get the the binge drinking and the social networking and the the so-called hidden curriculum so everything that happens behind outside of the classroom right all of those social interactions that help socialize people and all that stuff all that all that good stuff and then there's the babysitter function um, because the reality is that people are not ready to enter the workforce after high school for the most part so we need to help them transition into a career and then the the other element is job training which you get through you know programs like engineering um rehabilitation medicine things like that they're more likely to they're a high rate a high percentage of them lead to jobs following right so that's the training that's the practical training the skills based training and then the other the other element um it, it, you know which is my gotcha moment here is training people to be professors and that's the central problem because people take classes with no intention of going on to becoming professors because only a few of them will become professors so they end up taking courses that are geared towards the wrong audience and professors teach undergraduate students to become professors that's the that's the mentality they're not going in with oh i'm going to teach them i'm going to open their minds i'm going to make them good citizens i'm going to teach them critical thinking ideally yes but in practice that's not what professors are teaching professors are teaching young people to become like them and that's not a cynical viewpoint that's not me being cynical about professors i just think it's true the things that professors are excited about they're interested in sharing them with undergraduates most of that excitement's going to be way over the undergraduate's head and undergraduates realize this and so they focus on what they need to focus on which is leveling up by getting good grades getting the gpa getting the c's whatever and that's where i think the university is failing the rest of it i think is fine it being a life training socialization job training I think the university is as is as good at those things as they as it was ever good at. The problem is when you get into the softer fields, social sciences, humanities, it's not the only they aren't the only kinesiology. You're moving beyond you don't know who your audience is. There's there's a disconnect between the audience and the purpose. Undergrad the professors teaching that because they want to share their ideas and all the cool things that they've learned throughout their career and that they're excited about. And the undergraduate is there either because it's an easy elective or they perceive it as an easy elective because they're curious about the topic and they want to be taught by an expert um, or because they just think they need to be there because they're supposed to be there. And so that's where the disconnect comes in. And I think that that's why I think I was wrong, especially now looking at the economics of universities. The, the reality is that arts are, the arts faculties are money makers for a lot of universities and that's the confusing part because they put a lot of butts in seats but it goes nowhere right so they're they're money makers and that's how the arts now 
illustrates its value. If they're not going to go towards philosophical issues or intellectual issues, they're going to say, hey, look, look at the dollar per head. And I just think that that's the wrong way to look at it. And because there are obviously bigger concerns here. I mean, with when we were doing the whole strike at UMB, overturning into a polytechnic, there are some legitimate needs in New Brunswick for economy focused training. And it's not a blue collar, white collar thing. It's not about getting rid of intellectuals. It's about meeting the actual needs of the community where you're at. And that's something that was just completely over my head. Um, I was just like, Oh, you're getting rid of our ability to philosophize and have these great conversations. Um, but maybe, maybe fewer of the fewer of those conversations need to take place within undergraduate programs where people are just there because they're engineers that managed to get two electives and they wanted to take the sociology course rather than something else because they'd like to relax for a change, you know, or misguided people who think that they're going to be able to turn their anthropology degree into a job and fulfilling career. Does that make any sense? Like I'm, I'm yeah, kind of rambling I'm, a bit, but no, you're not rambling, man. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, my question is, do you think this has been, how long do you think this has been like the problem with the arts degrees? I think, I think pre-World War II for sure. Really that long? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think early to mid 20th century because people, people were making note of this then. This, they, like people were talking about more or less what we talk about now, which is this consumer focus of education. You know, that the students are ruling the roost. Professors are increasingly disconnected from the student body. There's too many PhDs. There's too many graduate students. There's not, you know, all this stuff. That's where that conversation, I'm not saying it's where it began, but that's really where it started to kind of take on a life of its own. And there's a documentary, National Film Board of Canada, I can't remember what year it is, but I think it's like either the 50s or 60s. And it's about the formation of a new university in Canada. And, and some of the professors were just, they're talking pretty much exactly about the same things that we're talking about now in terms of like how, how are they going to use this? Should we even be concerned about how they're going to use it? You know, why are people coming here? There's too many people coming here. You know, the standards are lower. I think what people worry about is that it's that cent what people worry about I think when they think about the social sciences or the humanities is that eventually we will be on the wrong side of that question that interaction between those two New York Times journalists you know that somehow that we will be on the people who like, I'm on the side of the person who says, hey, man, just read the philosophy rather than worry about being on the right side of some sort of, you know, historical delusion or some version of history. His history. 
be you know do whatever like do whatever you have to to get you know whatever economic stability you need to and then your curiosity about these things will just go wherever it'll take you anyway regardless of whether or not you have an education or not like i mean those things were sort of like we already knew about these things like like we kind of knew all of these filmmakers that we loved you know 95% of them like we knew none of them went to film school for it you know they just just made the films because there was something in them to just make the things right and well it's the same thing with novelists i mean i think i think it's still the case that most of the most the most successful novelists never went through a creative writing program yeah. and the and the advice that they give people is get a job put food on the table and write in your free time and make it a priority and this is completely accepted in the culture around writing I mean, some people might push back against it here and there, but it is more or less completely accepted that you, the chances of you becoming a successful published novelist are like tiny. So if you want to write, get a job and write. Here, just do it. Actually, I saw a recent interview with Douglas Murray and the person interviewing him brought up his first book um, that he wrote when he was 20. I read that. 20 or 21 and um no man it was and, younger he was like 18 guy, or 19 when you wrote oh, okay it. but it got published i guess when he was like 20 yeah. or 21 and and the person asked him that like basically how how did you like so many people have a hard time getting published and you know how did you get published and he basically just said i don't know i just wrote he's like i just wrote he's like you do you meet all kinds of people who tell you that they're writers who just haven't been published yet and then you realize that they're not even writing he's like you know like i just wrote and and um and then you know eventually i guess i got good at it basically um yeah i mean i think it's one of those things like what we're talking about like the idea of a kind of robust intellectual life which is essentially what we're saying when we about our fears we had about the university going away or being replaced by the polytechnic or whatever was going to happen is that we didn't want to lose that robust intellectual life um and, but it's, you don't need the university for that you know like you don't you, you don't I, I mean i don't want to you know i don't want to say we don't need university exactly but but i mean we just didn't know that at that time man we were yeah. just young right like we just had yeah. no idea we had no conception of an intellectual life outside the walls of a university well yeah i think that's exactly it but i mean i think going to the going to the sort of the heart of that is also the fact that universities at least when they're at their best provide a social license yeah to pursue the intellectual for the sake of pursuing the intellectual. And sure. I think at that time, I didn't think that there were any other, like I, I felt kind of like um, embattled slightly. Like there, yeah. this is the only place yeah. where we can do this. And, 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 I, th and I think, and, and I think for me, that was one of my great disappointments and going to university, I mean, I, I met some, you know, I met people there 
that I've made, you know, built lifelong friendships with, you know, people in this conversation. So I don't regret it for that reason. But, but I think I had an idea of university as being a place that beyond teaching you critical thinking skills, it's a place where ideas do battle, you know, where different ideas are given the light of day, nothing's off limits, and we just hash it out, you know? And I think that was one of my big disappointments about university. And it's, I'm sure it's worse now. It seems like it's worse from what, you know, from the things I hear. But even at that time, there, I mean, there just seemed to be this conformity of, of, of ideas, you know, like certain ideas just seemed tab, taboo and off limits, you know? The Iraq war was the, was the big thing. Yeah. Right. I remember some two or three very sort of heated conversations or at least, you know, back and forth. Good Lord. I remember, you know, going one guy, one conservative guy, fucking God help. Like he, he, he said in a political science class, uh, can we not? Can we at least not agree that Saddam Hussein was a ruthless dictator? And the fucking professor tore into him, and I, the fucking dumbass that I was, <laughs> I was on the professor's side. I was like, you know, so stupid. But there were times like I don't know if you remember this, where like people would show that clip. It's not aged well, by the way. That John Stewart up against, uh, you know, chiding, uh, you know, chastising Tucker Carlson. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, remember that? Yeah, yeah. You remember that clip growing? It was yeah. supposed to be this, like, heroic clip of yeah. John Stewart. Now he just looks like a fucking idiot. And oh, Tucker yeah. Carlson is the one that looks, <clears throat> like, that sounds reasonable in this whole thing. You know? Yeah. He's it's... like, you're hurting America. You know what I mean? It's like, you did the same thing. What are you talking about? Anyway, but, but yeah, I think uh, the the cleavage, or at least the, the difference between what we expected was possible of, a, of just being curious about things and just following your curiosity and the kind of culture that's in St. John, because there is a kind of sort of, I've noticed this a little bit, like, which is why I sort of got my back up a little bit again, the back and forth with, with John, because John and I never disagree about anything. I mean, we don't really argue a lot, but this was a very rare instance where we, um, fought. Um, cause I don't, do you remember us ever arguing, having sort of, uh, extended arguments, John? I it's think buried. It's buried in the back of my mind. If you give me a trigger, I'll I'll, I'll draw it out. Yeah. Um, but I've had a lot of arguments since then, so it's uh, no, no. We never. You and I never disagree about anything, do we? Yeah. But I think in Saint John, there's a certain kind of uh, there is a certain kind of class consciousness here. It's very 
because but but it's sort of under the surface but it's right there you can sort of feel it there is uh there is a certain kind of pride in not being a certain kind of educated person do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. having just enough education but that's not too much you know not throwing it in your face or anything more you know? like the like the kind of street smart idea you know like he's like he's like you can't pull the wool over his eyes like i remember Everyone people... Jason everyone in this town is a will hunting only they've never they are not math geniuses and they don't read yeah. books well know? it's it's i remember people used to say about my grandfather um they used to say um and, and i'm sure this is truth to this i i don't mean i'm not trying i'm not trying to disparage my grandfather here but but i but one thing i but it's just to illustrate this point you're making is i remember people used to say you know he only had uh you know a, a grade five uh you know education or whatever he dropped out of school at a very young age um you know he only had like a grade five education or whatever it was um but but you, you know, you couldn't fool him. You, you know, he, he would, I mean, uh, anyone with all the, you know, book smarts in the world, I mean, they couldn't pull the wool over his eyes. You know, I, I think it's this idea that, and, and I, th- I mean, there's probably truth to it. It's just, there's a, there's different kinds of knowledge. And I think St. John, and I think of perhaps like a working class environment prizes a certain kind of knowledge that only comes from lived experience a self-reliance self-reliance over uh, a more intellectual um kind of you know kind of not you know kind of knowledge i guess it's like Like, two different movies do you know what i mean like everyone who's lived in a working class environment has been in like they're living the life of a Western. Like there's the government is nowhere to be around. There's nowhere around. No one's going to come and help them. They're just by themselves. It's just whatever right. their lo- rules are. And they just have their own wits about them. And they just have to figure shit out, right? And there is a certain kind of academia that just relies on the power. Like that's a superhero movie. Do you know what I mean? Everyone is just, you know. Those are those the, the the superheroes are those institutions. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're institutionalized in that manner, right? You're just living in that you're you're living in a Marvel movie, and those two things, those two narratives of the world, they just do not align for some reason. Well, uh, um, brilliant yeah. analogy. It's amazing. because well, because in my because well, in my on your face. Well, because in my in my head, I was I was about to say I've actually heard a lot of people describe superhero movies as the new westerns, but uh, um, no, I, I but but I, I think it's but I, but I absolutely think that's that's true. It's it's the I I think in Saint John, there's definitely you know. And I feel, and I think for me, like as as someone who's of this town, you know, of these, like at some level, these are my people. I think there probably is no, no. I I I agree. I think there's a part of I like that about this town. But but I think there's a part of me that views my 
intellectual curiosities as as gay frivolous or something that or yeah or like something that i you know i should be embarrassed about or i'm like wasting my time like like i remember um recently <laughs> I, I took ripley to the park and uh and i'm reading uh uh, the divine comedy and I, and I, and I had it out and I'm reading it. And seriously, every time people walked by or got close to me, I, I put it down on my lap in a way so they couldn't see the back of it so that nobody would know that that's what I was reading. Like I felt very self-conscious. Like immediately I just thought you're such a fucking asshole. You're sitting in a park reading. You are so Different. Dante, you fucking dickhead! Like That's it's just like immediately so that perfect, was Jason. That was my uh, <laughs> like, but that was my kind of reaction to it. You know, like I felt like like I'm like oh, if people like like well, what are you trying to like rub your intellectual pretensions in these people's faces? You. You, you fucking asshole! Like that's Ooh, the way. someone can read. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, Stephen King's not good enough for you. I like Stephen King, by the way. I'm not, not. I didn't mean that to disparage Stephen King. But, but just, uh, to, but to contrast what you said, maybe we'll end on this because I think John's got a low. But I was listening to a podcast and like, and where this person in the middle of a podcast, like I could, I realized how much of a St. John or I've turned into because in the middle of this podcast, this person said without irony, he's this like philosophy professor. And he said, uh, so I was reading Thucydides with my nine-year-old oh, and my nine-year-old made this observation that kind of Hannah Arendt found. And I was like, this fucking hand job. I, I thought that I, too. <laughs> But no, but you know what? It's because you, at this point, I, I said, that's what I sent to you. Uh, um, I, we'd been listening to this stupid fucking jerk off. Who's obviously an absolute idiot no, but going on for 40 minutes. But I think that's part of it, right? Like if I didn't think this guy was an intellectual fraud, I probably wouldn't have reacted in the way I did to his comment about his reading to his daughter. Thucydides, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is that it can totally go a different way. Like, I was reading, there's a, there's a, you know, there's this pulpy detective series written by an Irish writer named Ken Bruin. And the first, the first book is called The Guards. And it's about. uh, I read that. You read that. Okay, good. So it's about, it's, it's about an alcoholic, um, an alcoholic private eye who's just barely getting by. The city a, that he's in reminds you of St. John immediately. It does. It does. And he's, he's just barely getting by. It's like someone living near like a wharf district or something in this rooming house, you know, and he's passionate about the booze and, and, and you know, in a way that I actually don't think most alcoholics are oddly enough, but, um, and there's just these glimmers of poetry he throws in because so he's an alcoholic down on his luck, blue collar, private eye, who's passionate about poetry. And for some reason, there's no clash when I read it throughout the series. I, I, I think actually 
I think you might have. Do you own that book or something, Arf? I think you might have. Jason, lent it John, to me. John lent it to both of us. Oh, okay, okay. Back when I, he was over here. Yeah, I read that. I read that too. Um, you got a visitor. <laughs> yeah, she's asleep in my bed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, there, maybe it's maybe you just forgive it in literature. And you don't forget. But we'd find it. We'd find it very strange in real life if we had oh a. My God, mention poetry. An, if we had an alcoholic buddy who would just kind of randomly uh, spout Recite off Shemus Sh- Sh- Heaney or that, something. That, that kind of see, it, it, or it almost seems like uh, it even almost seems a bit like uh, you know, like a Cassavetes, like a Cassavetes movie or something, where I that that's sort of what these people are like. Like it's these like you know, salt of the earth, working class people who also yeah like know these like can make these very poetic references and things like but that but that that kind of cat person or that kind of character is not it, it's not unusual around like india and stuff you know with like i had uncles like that they were not i mean the only the weird part about it would be the you know would be the alcoholic part not the poetry part Right, like it wouldn't seem odd that someone would just be interested in reading poetry. It's the odd association with class to those things. I, and I and I think and I think for me that's one of the things that I probably do. And I fail obviously in moments like I was describing when I'm sitting in the park feeling embarrassed. But but I do think there's a part of me that thinks that this assumption that thinking about life in a more intellectual way has no appeal to the working class that the working class. And and I say it myself. I mean, earlier when I was talking about the Jordan Peele movies, I mean, obviously these kinds of concerns are bullshit concerns for a person to have, I think, but, but whatever, but the idea that a working class person wouldn't ha- think about things a certain way but but yeah i think this idea that a working class person wouldn't view life in an intellectual way or wouldn't want to be well read or wouldn't have an interest in that or wouldn't like foreign films even like just something as basic as that i mean yeah i think it's something that i probably resent that or push try to push back against that a bit you know when maybe when I maybe this is actually the true anti-intellectualism that's that's how it's actually manifesting if we have anti-intellectual anti-intellectualism in our culture this is how it's actually coming out yeah yeah mm-hmm. absolutely i think i think that's true you know um because c- it's only when i really get comfortable with a person you know like people i work with as an example um, like some of the other supervisors, you know, they, they think it's kind of, they might think it's kind of weird that I like watching, you know, all these art films or foreign films or reading, you know, the divine comedy, but, but, but I will talk about this stuff with them now. Cause I feel comfortable around them, but yeah, I would, I, you know, someone that I'm not really comfortable around, I, 
I, I feel like they'll they'll think I'm I don't know pretentious or putting on airs or something. So I I wouldn't necessarily talk about these things. Like I'll just talk about the things that they're also interested in. Like like if they're going to talk about movies and they're like, you know, oh, do you like medium double doubles and drive throughs that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, fellas. I think John's got to go, but uh, this has been great. Uh, I've got to uh, eat a pepperoni stick, you know, just before bed, just to sort of eat a pepperoni stick and read some. um, What am I reading? You still reading that coffin book? Of course, I've got a hundred pages left, but I have. um, Yeah, I'm. We'll have to. We'll have to. We'll have to do a. We'll have to do a pod about that when you're done reading it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to read some poetry before bed, um, just because, you know. With a pepperoni stick. Of course. Of course. Just keep it best of both worlds, you know, John. And I, did, see a, did I see a can of moose head over there? That is a can of moose head. That is correct. Yeah. So you, correct. You're, you're doing it. You're living the dream right now, combining high class and, uh, and low class. That's right. That's right. Just a Bruce Springsteen song, Inside a Toilet. Uh, <laughs> all right, fellas. Have a good night. All right. It's been a great time, as always. I'll have put a good this night. up here soon. All right. Take care. All right. Have a good night, guys.